Welcome to WeAreTechnology.com's User-Friendly 2.0 with host Bill Sickens, Technology Architect. This is User-Friendly 2.0. I'm your host, Bill Sickens. Welcome to this week's show. Joining me, Gretchen and Bill, welcome. Hello. Hello. So, got a good show coming up for you this week, and uh, we're going to be going into a number of topics. We talked a little AI again, but it's certainly the top of the news lately, and it seems to be something that is starting to be considered in almost every aspect of business and other things. So, you know, we'll have to see where this goes and what is and isn't a good idea. And one of the things we'll talk about later in the show, too, is if you have a business, do you need AI and can you benefit from it? Uh, because there's going to be a lot of people trying to sell it to you. So, you know, we'll see what actually goes on with all of that. And, um, you know, in addition to that, we're going to be talking about networking. And there's been a lot of questions that have come in dealing with Wi-Fi and cell phones and even wired networking, where all the different numbers and letters and stuff mean, and even some scams that are coming out with all of that. So that's coming up later in the show. And then after the news, we're going to be talking to Dan Lamb, who is opening an art exhibit in Portland. She's got some amazing sculpture that she's putting on display and something definitely I encourage everybody that's in the Portland area to go down and check out. She's a really neat person, so she's going to be talking about her artwork when we get to that section. So that's what we got coming up for you today. So let us know what you want to hear us talk about. We've got a new format, as you can see lately, that uh, we don't have as many commercial breaks. and and actually talk about topics a little bit longer. Userfriendlyshow.com is where you send your questions. That's also where you go if you want to look at back episodes, read Tech Wednesday, or see any of the many other things we have done over the past 10 years. All right, so what do we have in the news? Oregon and Louisiana DMVs hacked. This sounds yeah, bad. This is, this is a pretty major hack, too, and it's not just the DMVs, although those were the ones that... Uh, really got hit. In fact, the Oregon DMV or the state of Oregon is saying that if you have a driver's license or state ID card in Oregon, just assume that your information's out. And that includes name, address, phone number, uh, other personal information, driver's license number, the last four of your social security number. At least it wasn't the complete social security number, but it is a lot of information. And this actually isn't limited, like I say, to just to the DMV. It's a hack that was actually done against a third-party piece of software called MoveIt. So like some of the hacks we've talked about in the past, what happens is a lot of these bigger networks will buy software from other vendors that do different things on their network. So you have an operating system that might be, you know, from Microsoft or Windows or a Linux version or something that a lot of different people use. And then within that, you use other programs and software and stuff to make the network work. And this is one of those cases where the hackers, which was turning out to be a Russian criminal gang, didn't focus on the DMV per se. They focused on this piece of software being used by the DMV and other agencies. And some of the other agencies hacked include many banks, including Umqua Bank, uh, different places like that, a number of airlines, the BBC in Britain. In fact, a couple of their agencies really got hit with this. Uh, one of their uh, drug, like pharmacy stores, a lot of that information got out. And the thing of it is with all of this is this is not a kind of a situation where you can really recover from it by just resetting a password. At this point, you're going to have to watch your credit reports, watch your bank accounts, make sure nothing weird's going on. But the primary use of this type of information by the bad guys is not so much to try to clean out your checking account. It's to open other credit accounts in your name that you may not know about. And that's why it's important to not only watch, but 
freeze your credit reports. And if you do choose to freeze your credit reports, it is possible to do all three bureaus for free. They make it somewhat difficult to get to those settings. Uh They are out there. I went through all of this process. <laughs> yeah, we had, we had to work, work around definition. I know you and, and you ran into it where they wanted to charge you a couple of times. Right. And I even did it for Jeremy, even though he's not around anymore. I don't want somebody trying to use his information uh, to yeah. open up accounts. And that's a very good point. Deceased, you know, loved one. Also, your children. That's another one where you want to yeah. lock down credit reports. Mm-hmm. Oregon ends full-service gas station requirements. Yes, and I, I think that we need a moment of silence here. <laughs> As sorry, someone that has been laughing. in Oregon for four years now, I am firmly entrenched in the fact that I don't have to get out of the car and fill my gas tank and know how to even open the gas door. However, this isn't quite as bad as it sounds. When I saw this headline, I thought I was going to need to have an appointment with my therapist. But what they are actually doing is gas stations can now have half self-serve and half full-serve. So the full-service will still be out there. It just won't be the whole gas station anymore. But the state of Oregon has been kind of pushing back on this over the last few years. I think it was in 2017 they got rid of the requirements at night in rural areas, mainly because all the gas stations were closed, which was a problem. So, um, you know, in going in this direction, and I think for people that want to be able to pump their own gas, this is fine. My concern is, is obviously, and at least in my opinion, I think they're wanting to get rid of this altogether, and it is something that builds jobs. But the other side of it is, is in other jurisdictions like, oh, Reno, where would you go for a full-service station? It's not like you even have the choice if they don't have no. the requirement that that's there. Yeah, there's no choice here for that. So, Problematic Ford Explorer recall prompts federal investigation. Yeah, and you know, we have talked about with cars before the idea of fly-by-wire. And what that is, is that a lot of your critical systems on some cars are electronic and may or may not also be mechanical. So in other words, when you shift the car into drive in a classic transmission, when you pull the lever up to the drive setting, there's a mechanical lever that goes down into the transmission and shifts the gear. On a modern car, the thing looks like a transmission shifter, but it's really just a switch. And when you switch it, it sends a signal to the computer, which sends the signal to the transmission control computer, which does a few other things, which electronically shifts it into drive. So, and the same thing exists for brakes and other systems like that. Well, the Ford Explorer problem has a problem with their parking brake, that the mechanical brake may fail. So if something happens and the park doesn't work, the car can move. So the way that they fix this was a software update so that it would engage an electronic parking brake every time you put it in park. The only problem is, is A, that didn't fix the problem, the initial problem, and now there's been some reports of the brakes engaging while the car is in motion, which uh-huh. is unpleasant, to say uh, the least. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So That's not good. In any event, um, I haven't seen an answer on this or if uh, Ford's going to re-recall these cars to fix them correctly. But if you have a Ford Explorer, look up your recalls just so you know what's going on and um, take appropriate precautions. Simpsons writer on 2006 episode that predicted the Titanic submishap has traveled on Titan three times. Yeah, so this is interesting. And, you know, the Simpsons, I I don't know, they've predicted a lot of stuff over the years, (laughs) this being one of them. And it's... uh, 
for anybody that has been off the planet since 1989, um, The Simpsons has been on since 89. They're in, I believe, season, what is it, 34 now or 35, maybe even. Something and, crazy like that. Yeah, it's it, it's we we actually had an interview with a Simpsons writer uh, a while back, and um, it just is amazing to see this this show that just keeps going and going and going. I like The Simpsons; I always have. So you know, seeing that being out there, but some of the other ones that are in here, of course, the the Trump presidency, but some of the other things that they've talked about. There was an episode of, uh, talking about tobacco plants, which was a combination of tomato and tobacco which were extremely addictive. They've had something like this sprouting up near the uh, nuclear power plant that melted down in Japan. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, no one's tried to make money off of it yet, but um, they've definitely been out there. Things like smart watches, serving horse meat, that came up in Europe, um, known as the horse meat scandal of 2013. when they found out that uh, one of the gas stations that sold hamburgers were 29% horse meat. Um, let's see what else they had a three-eyed fish appear. Uh, uh, let's see, this was in Argentina. A fisherman caught a three-eyed wolf fish in a reservoir near a nuclear plant. That doesn't sound familiar, right? Oh um, no, not at all. Oh my! <laughs> things like Baby Translator. There's a number of apps that do that. Uh, season two, they censored Michelangelo's David. That's a nude statue. That's actually happened in some parts of the world. So that list just goes on and on. I think the one that's the most alarming was the Walt Disney and Fox merger. <laughs> <laughs> that was predicted almost 10 years before it happened. So anyway, so watch The Simpsons if you want to know what's happening in the future, maybe. UPS discloses data breach after exposed customer info used in SMS phishing. Yeah, this, so what happened here was primarily in Canada and through tracking systems and SMS, they were able to, the bad guys were able to get delivery addresses and some other personal information. And then we're using them to send fake emails and text messages saying that you have a package available, but we need you to make payment on it before it can be delivered, stuff like that. So it's just another thing to look out here. If you have an idea or get something that seems a little bit off, check to make sure that it's absolutely real. I mean, electron delivery packages are very rare these days. And the other side of it is, is the best thing to do is to go to whoever the company is, check it out with them, and don't use a link that's in the email or text. You would need to go to your web browser. In this case, go to ups.com and then check out the session there to make sure that you're actually looking at UPS's website, not something else. We're speaking with Dan Lamb about her upcoming fourth solo exhibition, Cosmic Shake, at Shafus Gallery. Dan is an artist based out of Texas. Her works are sculptural expressions and plays with sensational dichotomies by combining unconventional materials, organic forms, and bright colors. With contrasting themes verging on beauty and grotesqueness at once, Lamb's art provokes its viewers to ponder meaning and existence while inspiring feelings of familiarity and wonder. This exhibition will be an exclamation of Dan's mesmerizing sculptures, and this time around, she's elevated the bar to new heights, exploring and creating new shapes and textures. Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So let's just start at the beginning. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your projects? Yeah, at the beginning of like my life or just at the, <laughs> at the, you know what, I, whatever you want to do, this is your time. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Uh, well, a quick, quick 
um, intro. I um, was born in the Philippines. Um, I moved to Texas with my family when I was just a baby. Um, I grew up mostly in Texas, went to school here. Uh, I'm still in Texas, went to school here, um, but I moved to Arizona for four years to do grad school. But otherwise, um, that's where I'm based. Uh, I've been doing art full time since I was, or since 2016. Um, And yeah, it's been a crazy, busy um, eight years or seven years. I I can only imagine. So tell us a little bit about your medium and what got you into art and what you like to do. I um, started doing art since, I mean, I, since I can remember, I've, I've always made art. Um, but as a career choice, I went to undergrad for graphic design and it wasn't right. And I was like, you know, I told my mom, I had this big conversation with her and I was like, I can't, this is not the right thing for me. I had professors who were telling me the same thing. Um, and they were encouraging me to move to studio art. So eventually I did, um, which was the best thing I could have done. And yeah, and then I went and got my master's actually because I was I was fully committed to the idea that I wasn't going to, you know, be like a working artist. I would just have to do other things to supplement my um passion to create. Um so I thought, you know, I get my master's, I could teach at a at a university or college level and that would be a pretty good, you know, balance of like making art and being around the arts and all that. Um Yeah. Was that you know, I don't think a lot of people realize that there is such a difference between disciplines of things like graphic design, fine art, commercial art. These are all very, very different fields when you look at them and what you do and how you how you would go about do it. So let's talk a little bit. You've got a show opening this week and in Portland. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and what you're doing and what you expect? Yeah, so this will be my fourth solo show with Shafa's Projects. Um I, every time I do a solo show and I do about one to two every, every year, I like to just bring something that's, you know, a little bit different to what I show. So my work, you know, every time I start a new, a new show, it's not like a completely new body of work, but my work is very, it evolves out of itself. So with this, with this solo show, um, I'm bringing in some new shapes, some new forms, um, that I haven't worked with before and some new textures. So hopefully whoever has, you know, been to previous shows in person um, in Portland will be able to see that evolution for themselves, like, you know, there. Um, but yeah, I I think it should be good. This is uh, a new space for Shafus Projects, and I haven't shown in the space before. So I'm excited about that. I think that'll kind of, that'll be the biggest difference for me is, is the, the gallery itself. I love to ask questions about background on all of this, and you bring up the gallery. So when we come to a show, we see, you know, what the public or whoever you're presenting to is meant to see. But what goes into that? Because there's obviously a lot more than just hanging art or, you know, something like that. You've got to do layouts. I would think you have to think all that through just as much as about anything else. So what does it take to prepare for a show? So for me, on my end... um... It takes about two months, three months of, of preparation of creating the work, sometimes longer, depending on you know what it is I want to make. I have some larger pieces for the show. Um, but as far as the curation and the actual like installation of the work, so my work is, because it's sculptural, um, I actually like to leave it up to the, the gallerist or the curator to um, interpret how they want to put the show together, unless I have something specific 
like an installation. Um, and then I, I send, you know, m- more like strict guidelines as to how I want something displayed or hung up. But um, I've worked with Stephanie for years now, uh, owner of Shafus Projects, and she, you know, she, she gets my work and um, she always does a great job with installation. So I think it's a pretty quick turnaround for them too. Like they take down a show, the previous show, and they have about a week, I think, to install, take down the show and then install the new show. Um, so I imagine, you know, I imagine she does planning on her end before um, the deinstall of previous show and the install of the new show. But I actually don't know. I should ask her <laughs> how, how it works for her. No, I just, I, you know, I, I just find that curious because it's like, it seems like your presentation is very important. And if that was done wrong, that could really affect what you're trying to do. And, you know, so I can see where that is. But and from what you're saying, you're working with people that you've worked with a lot. So that they're, I would imagine, you know, all of that clicks so that you're kind of going into it. You're pretty, they know what to do, it sounds like. So that's good. All right. So where are you showing and what are the times? And go ahead and give us a little bit about your schedule for anyone that would want to uh, attend. Yeah. So the show opens July 7th. It's a Friday. Um, The opening, I think, is from 6 to 9, I think, or 6 to 8. Usually openings are 2 to 3 hours. Um, And the show will run until August 8th. So the opening is just, you know, I'll be there, I'll be in town, and it'll be a reception where you can come and socialize and um, look at the work. And there, I think there'll be drinks and stuff. Um, and then, you know, the gallery is open during gallery hours for the rest of the time. And if anyone is in Portland or lives there visiting, um, they can definitely go and just check it out. And, and it's free. Um, you can just go and, and enjoy the work. And sometimes... It's fun to it's fun for for me for the opening because I'm there and I get to meet everybody who are, who's you know is able to make it. But um, you know if you like a quieter experience, I recommend just going during their their hours. Oh, that sounds great. So the opening is this Friday, and we'll get out on our social media the details of this as well as the address of the gallery and all of that, so that uh, people know where to go because that'll help a little bit too. And uh, you know finding everything. So is there anything else you want to tell us? Um, the name of the show is Cosmic Shake. Um, it was, I was inspired by, you know, I I just feel like a lot of change is happening currently in my life. And, um, some of the things feel sort of serendipitous or, um, like just completely out of my control. And so I, the work reflects some of that, some of those new changes. And even though some of them may be subtle and some may be big, um, that's what the title is referencing. It's just this sort of this moment in time that, that things are getting stirred up. That's great. It, uh, do you have a website or any social media you want to give us? Yeah. Um, so my website is bydanlam.com. My um, Instagram and TikTok handle is sopopomo, S-O-P-O. P-O-M-O. Um, or you could just search me by Dan Lamb. Um, and yeah, actually, yeah, I think those are my only social medias. There's so many now, but those are my my main ones. Okay, no, that's great. And again, we'll get all of this out on our social media so that it's all in one spot and we can look it up. I did have a chance, by the way, to look at your webpage. And I don't know, I, I think what you have out there is amazing, but I can't wait. I'm hoping I can see it in person. Because there's a huge difference with sculpture from looking at a picture online and actually seeing something. I know just in general, 
and looking at some of the amazing stuff you've done, I think that that's going to really play true here. So, all right, again, coming up this Friday, and we'll have the details on our social media, and that's userfriendlyshow.com or one userfriendly. Thank you for joining us today, and good luck. Thank you so much, and I hope to see you there. Now, that was a great interview. That's Dan Lamb, Shafas Galleries, and it's our Shafas Projects, actually, opening July 7th in Portland. Take a look online. I encourage everybody to go check this one out. So speaking of fine art, Gretchen, Bill, I know you both are fine artists, and I have a great respect for your discipline because, as I've said in the past, I can't draw a straight line with a ruler. I mean, it's just I do not have the gene for that. And I love art. I just know that I can't create it. So let's talk a little bit about, uh, uh, Bill, I'll start with you. What's an artist? Uh, what do you do? What kind of artists do you like? Who's somebody that you would recommend people check out? Well, I mean, I'm a tra- I am started traditionally. I mostly a lot of uh, graphite and paper. I've done inks. Uh, sold a lot of paintings. Um, Worked in all those different mediums from oils, acrylics, watercolor. Um, moved into digital recently. I mostly do uh, commission work of people's D&D characters or other RPG characters for uh, character art. I'm trying to figure out the names. I have so many that I follow. Um, I, I, I couldn't even begin to really name some. Uh I why don't you go for Gretchen? I'll see if I can out there. Yeah, out. while you're looking at Gretchen, why don't you tell us? I know you're also oh, fine art, just, some of the same mediums. Yeah. Um, well, I was just uh, you know, trying to cheer myself up looking at Imager. And uh, no, it's Im- Instagram. Sorry. <laughs> I always get those two mixed up. And um, usually look for the cats. And I came across this guy called, uh, who is Shane Burke. And he made this short little video of how to draw a face. And he made it so easy that I thought, okay, let me see if I can do the same thing, you know? And it turned out pretty darn good. And I could see how this would inspire somebody into giving art a chance. Give it a try. Uh, Maybe you can do something other than a stick figure. So um, this fellow is on Instagram and he goes by, I am Shane Burke. And he is a, a face and a bunny rabbit and a few other things. I have to give him the big test and see if I could benefit from that. All right, we're about to go to our break. After we get back, we're going to be talking intelligent automation and all about new networking technology. This is User Friendly 2.0. We'll be right back. Welcome back. This is User-Friendly 2.0. Send us your questions and your comments. We're going to be talking a little later in this segment about networking and all of the different numbers and trying to explain that a little bit. And hopefully uh, we can. It's a pretty big topic. But this is based on a listener question or a number of listener questions that have come in. Userfriendlyshow.com is where you go to send us that. There is a big blue button on there that says submit your question. And please send us over questions, story ideas, anything you want to talk about. You're welcome to send it through userfriendlyshow.com. And that's where you go for that. So coming up in just a moment here, we are going to have an interview with a guest that is very much into something called intelligent automation. 
And what this is about is businesses today are looking at trying to use AI for a lot of stuff that seems to be the latest thing that uh, is out there that is trying to be sold. And he kind of dives into this and explains where this is actually needed, what intelligent automation is. In some cases, you don't need that at all. You just need to look at existing business processes and that type of a thing. And it's really something that has to be decided on a business by business perspective. So, you know, it's going to be interesting to hear about this because I know that with even my own clients, there's a lot of questions that come up with these type of things is, do I need AI? Is there a better way to do it? And really anybody that's been running software that's any more than about three years old probably does need to look at upgrading because there's a lot more you can do now ways that'll save money, hopefully make your business more money. But if you don't do it right, you can spend a lot and not get a lot for it. So, you know, like anything else, there's good and there's not so good. So with no further ado, let's go to our interview. Our guest today is Jamar Garcia with Genus Technologies. Did I say all that right? Absolutely. Sure did. Hey, cool. Spot on. We got a good start going on here. Now, you're a business technologist, and you work in the area of intelligent automation, or IA. We've heard of AI. Let's just start there. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah. So intelligent automation is really how businesses automate their business processes. Um, So, you know, imagine you've got um, a business that has, let's say, they have an ERP system or an accounting system where they basically drive their business around that. one thing that we found with a lot of customers is that they want to enhance that, get it to where they can maybe cut down uh, the time it takes for uh, a business process to complete. And so a lot of times um, uh, modifying that system of record is, is costly and kind of difficult. And so with more modern technologies, we found that customers want to leverage what we now call intelligent automation to do things more automatically, um, leverage things like uh, mobile, um, modern you know, user interfaces, um, machine learning, uh, AI, to be able to do things more on a more automated, in a more automated way. Okay, so it sounds like the term really refers to kind of an umbrella almost of taking some different technologies and making them all work together. Would that be an accurate kind of 10,000 foot description? I would say so. And I think that a lot of that centers around, you know, so it sort of centers around the customer experience and the user experience. And a lot of it is how can we cut down cycle time? But yeah, so a lot of it is um, a lot of different technologies, but it it does center around how do we get things done faster? So a lot of companies, businesses, and that type of things that are using technology today are doing it in what I would kind of call an old way. And I think that's what you're referring to here, where you might get some data off your website for lead generation, or you might have you know, something that organizes some of the business processes. What does it take to take kind of a legacy format like that and apply what you're doing to it to make things work better? Yeah. And you know, it's funny because a lot of times we, and, and just as you know, technology folks and technology vendors, right? A lot of times we try to invent the next best thing. And I find that a lot of times our customers aren't, don't move as fast as let's say marketing would like to. And so a lot of times techniques that have been tried and true and techniques that have been sort of working over time may still work, right? So it it might, a lot of times it's, hey, how can we, um, 
understand the business problem? How can we understand um, how can, uh, let's say, applying technology to get a good business outcome? And a lot of times that works out really well. Um, now, if we need to use sort of newer technology or more modern, let's say, you know, AI is just a big example out there. Um, maybe that would be helpful if we're trying to do something that is completely different than what we're doing today. So okay. like, let's say, for example, ChatGPT and generative AI, right? That's over the last six months have been kind of the biggest, you know, just like some of the biggest topics in technology. And a lot of times the business problem does not call for it. So sometimes we need to take a step back and say, well, what is it that we're really trying to do? Um, and how do we apply technology to get that outcome? So um, maybe uh, the, the how really starts with um, doing an analysis on your business and just trying to find the straightest line to a, a, good, you know, a positive business outcome. Definitely something that would vary from company to company and need to need, obviously, from what you're saying. So, yeah, and that actually does totally make sense that AI is not some kind of a silver bullet that's going to solve every business problem that there is out there, which I think a lot of people are starting to think it is. And it does make sense that you would need to look at what the actual use case really is, right? So you go from there. So so let's say you come up with a with a customer, you know, just to give an idea of a scenario like that. and. Uh, you've run into that. And you've determined that there may be some benefit to some machine learning for their website, mm -hmm. you know, or something of that nature. And then they also have some other processes inside that are maybe different vendors. I'm uh, quoting from an example I'm facing right now and uh, some things like that. Um, what does it take to get from that point? I mean, like timeline, energy wise, investment wise, what, it, what would it look like to actually solve that problem and bring it into a modern approach? Uh, using something like intelligent automation to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I would say, you know, so looking at tooling and I think where we've seen a lot of innovation is in tools that are more accessible for business users. And so you may have heard, and I, th I think before generative, the big, um, the big trend in, uh, at least business technology has been low code, no code platforms. And I think right. once generative came, came out, that kind of um, got drowned out, but it's still super relevant. And I think that finding the right low code tool is, is really important um, because it, it speeds up development. Um, it lets you uh, try, uh, try things out, fail fast, become more agile um, as, as we've you know, heard that term used a lot. Um, and, and I think that um, going with a tool, going with tooling that is uh, modern, low code, and and really um, shortening that time to value, I think is really at the center of um, how to affect change throughout the organization. Right, right. And just for anybody that may not know, can you define what low code and no code uh, approach is? Yeah. So. Um, in, in the olden days, and probably still, you know, still today. Yeah, um, six months ago, right? So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> way, way back in the, you know, pre-2022 or right. 2023. Um, so, uh, normal uh, systems were built using tools like Java, 
Visual Studio, um, uh, C Sharp, C++, um, and, and a lot of programming tools that you, you need a software developer, someone with um, that sort of experience to actually build it for you. Um, and over the last, maybe over the last, I'd say, 10-ish years, there have been a lot more platforms, a lot more um, uh, application building platforms that are more visual, that lets you um, kind of drop in like a what you see is what you get. So there's a user interface part that can be um, uh, built by someone who maybe does not have a computer science degree. And, and actually, you know, you might be a business user that knows exactly what you want and you can drop things into that, that um, uh, application building tool. And you can actually have a working application within, let's say, hours rather than months. Yeah, I know you'd save a lot of money doing it too. Okay, cool. Yeah, like I say, it's just the, that question will definitely come up. Mm. So, all right, well, um, tell us a little bit, because I know in your bio here, um, it describes you as being passionate. What got you into wanting to work in intelligent automation and, and solve uh, business problems in this way? You know, it, it's funny. I um, So I was a classically trained uh, software developer. Um, an anteater from UC Irvine, so that's that's kind of my my background. And actually, I started I started as an intern at a software company um, when I was eighteen, and so that was kind of the path that I wanted to take. Of was um, enjoyed programming, but I, I also enjoyed working with people. And I actually went into the uh, consulting group within uh, within the company I was working for, and. I think that was probably one of the best experiences that I had because it was, I, I get to work with technology, but I also get to work with people. And I find that actually maybe the, the biggest value add that I have is in working with people to help them in their journey to adopt technology because technology is hard. And, and there are a lot of um, problems that are, that seem almost insurmountable. And a lot of times it's just, you know, that's how, how do you navigate through that? And I feel like I get a lot of value um, working with people to kind of get through that because it, it can be a really stressful situation. And um, it's, it's enjoyable for me to help kind of um, unpack that for people. Now, and I can imagine that you've had a lot of rewarding experiences with it. I know one of the problems that I hear about a lot is that when you're developing technology for a company, first of all, it's such a key part of pretty much any business nowadays, but a lot of people feel like there's this black box and you can't really know what's going on. You just write a bunch of checks and hope it works later. And I can see where you're coming from with that because it would be such a benefit to have someone that you could obviously talk to and you know be able to work with that actually cares about your situation and is not trying to fit you into their box, right? So mm-hmm. that is that's really cool. No, that I, I like that. That's that's neat. So all right, is there anything else you want to tell us? Yeah, I mean, I think the um, um, on the on the generative piece, just to kind of um, kind of touch on that, it, I, I don't know. I just think it's a really interesting kind of direction, and and probably something that's going to change a lot of what we do um, business wise and just personally, right? And I think that we're we're, we're as as a collective and as sort of uh, um, just humanity in general trying to figure out how to best use technology and um you know try try not to um 
hurt ourselves in the process. And so I think that, you know, I, I don't know. I personally, I'm, I'm optimistic and maybe that's just, you know, my personality. I know there's a lot of folks that are kind of pessimistic about AI. Um, but I think that as, as we kind of continue to keep our eyes open and just to see where the industry goes, but also make sure that we're a part of that equation and that we, um, you know, make sure that we put the guardrails that need to be put in place that, um, that, you know, we can have this be a great tool for us as opposed to something that's really, really scary. Right. Absolutely. 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 How does somebody get in contact with your company? Yeah. So uh, Genus Technologies, G-E-N-U-S, technologies.com. Uh, um, and uh, that'd probably be the best way. You can hit the contact link and uh, reach right out. Or you can email me at jamarg, J-I-M-A-R-G, at genustechnologies.com. That's great. Thank you so much for joining us today. Awesome. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate it. You know, it's interesting when we talk about AI and with our guest that was just on, some of the things that they're looking at that with this. And like we said in the interview, it's certainly not a silver bullet. You've got to look at each company's use case and really figure out what's needed from business to business to be able to figure out what kind of a solution is there. So if someone comes up to you and they're going to use AI to solve all of your problems, be skeptical and talk to a professional like him and find out if what you're being sold is what you really need. So the other end of making all this work and a lot of questions that have been coming in on this lately is the whole deal with networking. Now, of course, networking is nothing new. We've talked about it on the show many times. And this is your Wi-Fi and your hardwired networks. And up until, you know, in the olden days, like we just said in the interview, so six months ago, there was a time <laughs> that your network was better if you hardwired everything. There was less lag and all that kind of stuff. Now, I know when I upgraded my home network, to Wi-Fi 6, I got a situation where the speed over the Wi-Fi actually was faster than the hardwired system with less lag. So that was a good thing. I actually have equipment set up where I've got a network switch sitting right next to it and I've unplugged it because it's actually better over the Wi-Fi. But where this all gets confusing is these numbers and there's actually some scams that are going on with all of this, which is I think what's generating some of our questions. So we wanted to dive back into this a little bit and talk about the differences, and hopefully this will be a little less confusing, maybe, we'll see. But I think it's important to point out, number one, that when you're looking at these numbers that denote things, they don't always mean the same thing. And then when you run a thing on top of that, and I'll give a for example of this is uh, Comcast Xfinity, for marketing purposes, has now come out with a 10G network, okay? so. In Wi-Fi world and on your cell phone, there's no such thing as 10G. I think they're just using it as a marketing thing, although there is such a thing as a 10 gig wired network. So that makes all of this even more confusing. So which but, one do they mean? Uh, well, I'm not quite sure yet. I tried to ask. Um, I never got a call back. I sent uh -huh. in a media inquiry. So I went by my local Xfinity store and tried to ask there, and I'm still trying to process the answer they gave me. It didn't make any sense. So <laughs> they probably don't. I think know. the poor guy, he was a nice guy, but I think he didn't know the answer exactly either. So, um, in any event, um, what the reality of these things are is on your cell phones, you have 4G, 5G, and 6G. Okay. And these, the G in that stands for generation. So, currently, um, what we're looking at and what pretty much everybody has is 5G. That's the new one that's coming out. 
Now, you might have heard that I mentioned 6G. Yes, it's being worked on as a standard. It's not something that's available yet, though. So if someone was to offer you a 6G cell phone, you might want to question that a little they're bit. They're full of hooey. <laughs> if, if, if they're talking about the wireless network right now, they are. However, on your home Wi-Fi, there is Wi-Fi 6. Okay. Oh, okay, that's now, confusing. Bill, I know you've worked with networks a lot. Have you worked with Wi-Fi 6 yet? I think I did a little bit with the mesh network, but um, I'm not entirely sure on that one. It was my parents, and they just bought stuff and said it. Said, you know, can you set it up? And of course, I, I did. Remember that, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that's a, and that's another good point is a mesh network. So cl- let's start there. Classic Wi-Fi. You got a router. It sent out a signal, and you hope to be in range of that signal. What a mesh network is is there's multiple devices that go at different points in your location, say your house. They usually come in a two or a three pack that can expand them. And what it basically acts like is a repeater or a bridge in that it uh, enhances the signal. I use that, and I, most people that use mesh. I like it. Had to look, um, yeah. It, if you have a two-story house, use it. Get get that. Yeah. <laughs> it works. But if you have dead zones, get that, you know. But like, uh-huh. this is was, not a, was too long. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah a, long, a really long house. Yes. <laughs> well, you need multiple multiple units for that. And this is different than a Wi-Fi repeater because the system's actually designed to work together. But then the next thing that comes up is this whole version thing. So Wi-Fi 5 is, you can get that on a mesh. It's the uh, previous version of it. They work real well, two-band usually. Wi-Fi 6 is what you would buy right now. And these are pricey. So for a system that's kind of the best you can get, through something like Amazon or Best Buy, you're going to be looking at oh five or six hundred dollars to get a high end system that would be six E Pro. All right, so let's make this even more confusing. Version six, there seems to be three different versions of it by most of the manufacturers. I was picking on Amazon, but Linksys and TP Link and the others seem to do this too. Where Wi Fi six is a lighter version of the technology. 6E, um, presumably E means enhanced, add some more stuff. And then 6E Pro is the really good one. That's what I ended up using. It got me 1.4 megabit over my Wi-Fi. The difference between these, there's a lot. But one of the biggest differences is the number of devices that the system itself can handle, but also the frequencies it runs on. So the enhanced version and the Pro use three bands, uh, one in the 6 gigahertz range, which isn't as polluted, I guess would be the term, or busy to the traffic, maybe a better word, as the other stuff, especially the 2.4 gigahertz, which cordless phones and everything else runs on. So that helps a little bit. And the systems know automatically which way to connect and what the fastest way is and all of that kind of stuff. And it does it does seem to do its job. So if you're getting genuinely a Wi-Fi system that is a six, I would suggest spend a little more money if you can and get the pro version of it because it does do a lot more and in my case it solved a lot of my problems and you know i've joked about this in the past but i've got about 190 wi-fi devices in my house and he and really does it, no problem what mm-hmm. and he really does yeah oh yeah in your house <laughs> so um how do i turn on the light switch oh you're supposed to ask for it oh okay the light switch yeah, my my girlfriend teases me about this all the time. I, I guess maybe it's unusual to have many that, that many devices, but uh, this know. isn't the enterprise. <laughs> actually, we're kind of headed there. But anyway, so that, that's a <laughs> topic for another time. 
But that is where you're dealing with with uh, Wi-Fi. Does anybody want to weigh in on that? If you, have you guys had any good luck with this? I know you both have said you have the mesh, and I know Gretchen, you run that at your place. Mm-hmm. And yours is yeah. a mesh Wi-Fi five, but it's still a yeah, good one. mine's a five. But and you actually kind of helped me straighten it out because it was acting a little weird. Sometimes I guess you have to move the little nodes or little pieces around to get a better signal. And once you figure it out, there you are. Yeah. And Bill, I know you were saying you were having that problem where your uh, towers were so far apart, you weren't getting a signal. Yeah, we hired wired the uh, two mesh network pieces together. And that solved a lot of the problem there. Um, Yeah, I mean, I've used across a lot of the spectrum. I mean, I remember back when I was working on ring networks which is its own nightmare, as you probably know. <laughs> ring like token ring? Yeah. Oh, oh. boy, that's a that dust off that part of my brain, yes. Yeah. <laughs> For those that don't know, it means one computer connected to the next, to the next, to the next, like the old Christmas lights, which means if one computer was off, none of them worked. Yeah, the whole thing goes <laughs> down, I know. Oh, man. And you, if you want to add a, a new device to that kind of a network, you have to turn everything off and restart it. Yep. But... Uh... You know, I mean, I've had issues with different things, and a lot of it, like, Linksys has really come to be a much better product than they were back when I started. Um, But it's also a matter of the grade of stuff, you know? There are a lot of different companies out there and a lot of different mesh networks or or Wi-Fi. And honestly, I think it is worth looking into and investing in ones that are going to be consistent. Well, and definitely the type of equipment you get is important. So you do want to do that research. And that takes us to the wired connections because this used to be a lot more just kind of standard. And this has been upgraded too. You actually can get a maximum over copper now of 10 gigabit. And uh, so that's super fast. It's also super expensive to get the switches and stuff for that, but they do exist. I have a client that got 10 gigabit at their home and we're having to put in a firewall. And boy, that's been a challenge. Hmm. But uh you know, it's they're out there. It's just that's something to be prepared to pay for. So the alternative right now would be to go kind of in the middle, but not really in the middle, but sort of is the 2.5 gigabit. So your standard wired network usually runs at one gigabit. There's slower speeds, but that's pretty much what they've been. And the 2.5 gives you two and a half times. And you actually do need that to run the higher speed Wi-Fi because you can now get a home internet connection that goes over a gigabit. So you would be limiting your speed without that. So the 2.5s are reasonably priced. You can get a switch for about a hundred bucks, like a TP link or something, and be able to do your network, what's called a backbone, which is the wired part of it that way, which today usually means plugging in the wireless node and all of that kind of thing. And if you did have some hardwired devices you needed to put in, you could do it that way as well. And that's another thing to look for because I've found that um, on some of the mesh Wi-Fi networks, they have two ports, Ethernet ports, but only one of them supports the higher speed and the other one's slower. So mm-hmm. you do want to look for that too, to make sure what you're buying will accommodate the speed that you need. So anyway, yeah. um, I, I guess send in your questions on this because this is a topic that there's obviously a lot of pieces to, and it is something that's obviously very confusing. Bill, what did you want to say? Oh, I'm good. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> So anyway, but yeah, as far as all of that goes, it's definitely something to look at. It's an investment to do these kind of upgrades. Just make sure you're getting what you genuinely think you're getting and a reputable dealer, good equipment, and making sure that the numbers actually line up with what it is. And 
One other way to look at that is if you're looking at used equipment, like on eBay or a site like that, get the actual model number, get them to send you a picture of it, and then you can query that on the manufacturer's website to see what it really is. All right, so there you are as far as networks go. Any other questions, send them in. Userfriendlyshow.com is our website, one user-friendly on social media. And until next week, this is User-Friendly 2.0, keeping you safe on the cutting edge. User-Friendly 2.0 is copyright 2023, User-Friendly Media Group, Inc. All rights reserved. Views expressed on this show are those of the host and not necessarily User-Friendly Media Group, Inc. or this station. Music licensing by VMI. Hosting and technology provided by wearetechnology.com. Listen at theanswerportland.com, userfriendlyshow.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts.